This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 2. Alright, um, hi yep. everyone, wherever you are and whatever time zone you're in. I'm Kim Chatterjee and I'm calling in from Yanjin, which is the Brisbane um, home of the uh, Yagara and Terrible people. So I wanted to uh, give a talk about something that I don't think we talk enough about it because it's so assumed in what we do in UX and uh, user research. But I thought it would be interesting to take a spin on it. Um, so bear with me if this ends up being, yeah, duh, we all do this anyway. But I thought I'd share some stories about what I've been doing. Um, I've spent the last couple of years uh, working on behavior change projects, actually. So I kind of classify this as UX without the usual constraints um, or boundaries that we have. So what happens if you work on a project where you're trying to solve a problem um, where you don't know the language or you don't know the culture or the background or the history or what it is that your audience is um, actually aspiring to be. And there's so much danger when you're working in social impact projects and development projects that there's a danger of incorrect interpretation um, and the danger of your assumptions. So I was really lucky to be able to work with these crews um, 17 triggers, small services, FinProbity solutions, and a lot of the stories that I want to share with you today are from my experiences with them and where I've seen uh, design applied, you know, really well in certain contexts. Uh, now I'm back in Australia hiding from a pandemic and I'm dedicating my time to working on uh, women's heart issues. And uh, in line with what Steve Vaney was talking about yesterday, totally into the conservation space and climate action. So that really hit home uh, with your talk yesterday, Steve. So as a UXer, I get hit with Sonder all the time. And I love the existence of this word. Um, it's that realization that you have that the strangers around you have full, complex, vivid lives just as you do. And as UXers, I think we all kind of do this. And if you're in this space where you're really getting into solving problems for humans, this realization can hit you at any moment of going, whoa, that person has a complete history and a complete life that they're living their day. And we get to see glimpses of it um, in the, you know, where our, our lives intersect with them. And I kind of want to share a story with you about where I developed this appreciation for Sonder. Um, it happened at university ages ago, because yes, I am that old. But in the Philippines, a drama group came to campus one day and they set up shop and they're like, all right, we're going to get you to do this exercise. And they got us to walk in a circle and enact and embody uh, personas as they would call it out. So we started just walking in a circle as a child skipping or, you know, a teenager got all moody all of a sudden you know, a grown up and then um, eventually as an old person. And if you can imagine within moments, everyone was walking as this caricature, you know, hunched over old, just waiting for death, basically. Like that's a teenager's interpretation of old age, right? And at this point, as we're all kind of hobbling around in a circle, the drama group stopped us and said, all right, let's try that again. Let's do this in, uh, one more time. And this time as we were progressing through this person's life, they filled it in with, you know, stories of achievement and, you know, uh, a life lived, uh, pain and sacrifice and pride and joy of things that they'd achieved in their life. And our walk in a circle all became this 
chin held high, pride in our shoulders, because we were walking with the story of someone's achievements in life and purpose that we had internalized. And that moment kicked me solidly out of self-absorption, just for a moment, I'm still very self-absorbed, but uh, that made me really realize that every person out there is a body full of stories, full of uh, this you know, worthiness of being seen as a human being um, themselves. And we don't often get to remember this, but hey, that's what Sonder is about, right? So this got me thinking really about what dignity is. So here I'll reference one of the greats, uh, Immanuel Kant, who did a lot of work in defining dignity and how it's actually interpreted um, as a human right. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, so here he says, everything has either a price or a dignity. And if it has a price, it can be replaced. But if it has a dignity, it cannot because it's there is no equivalent. And here he says humans have inherent dignity. And I, I love that. Um, if you look up the definitions of dignity, you'll see things like being worthy, honored, esteemed. Um, this is something we all kind of know. But if you dig into that a little bit, there's assumptions that are inherent in these words. It kind of implies that you have to be worthy of that dignity. You know, you have to have achieved something a position, a status, um, you know, a role, you know, a, a ladder that you've climbed, uh, values that you hold um, or represent that make you better than others and therefore worthy of uh, that dignity. And this is where Kant actually said, well, no, without all of that, just by existing as a human, and I would like to extend this um, wider to all of the non-humans out there as well, this topic for another talk, um, dignity is inherent to each human. So in our work of problem solving and trying to find things to improve in quality of life, the lens that I want to talk about is when we're doing our work, how to absorb that, how to see how people respect others, how they respect themselves. And I'll get into that in a moment. We all know one of the other greats, um, Abraham Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs here. And I'd like to posit that everyone who's trying to solve a problem is solving a problem for people at one of these different levels. Um, and the timeframes that we get to work on our projects and our problems, right? It's, it could be a week, two weeks, a month, a year, however long it takes. And we, we have backlogs and we have constraints and um, other important things to do. So while we already know that the human has to be the center of what we're trying to solve, that, you know, keep the persona at the heart of what we design, Sometimes it's hard to remember that there's a level that um, we really need to consider here. Dignity sits at the esteem level. It's how, again, how you see yourself, how you want to be seen. And I'd like to add that lens here in all of the work that we do. That we, it, this is, it's a, it's a pyramid, but it's actually not a ladder. People can have very little of the base items on this um, on this pyramid but everyone can still have a sense of dignity. So this is actually the lens that we need to start with when we're doing our research. So this has a command. It has a built-in command um, that people have out there to say, see me, how do you actually see me? Um, because if, if you don't, then you're not getting to the real problems of what I'm trying to solve. So I have a couple of stories that I wanna share with you about where I've seen it uh, applied really well. So one of the examples um, is in the US, there are food banks that crop up all over the place because they're trying to solve a problem of people having jobs, but having to make really hard decisions of where to spend their money. Do they pay the bills? Do they keep uh, paying the rent 
Do they put money in their SUVs to get them to work or do they buy groceries? Uh, so I was volunteering here, um, helping some friends um, just run through. And I noticed how beautifully the whole thing was set up as though it was a grocery, a grocery store. A family can come in, pick up their rations, you know, their milk, their protein, their eggs for their household, but they actually get to choose X number of items with no judgment, no one looking over their shoulder to say, oh, you picked something unhealthy. Um, you know, see, so without judgment, you could pick up to a certain number of items of, and you can get the soda and the chips uh, for the kids because at the core of it, when you're cornered by life and you have limited choices for other things, you still want to have choices. And the way food banks are set up in the States caters to that. It's like, yes, it's charity, but you don't have to feel like it's charity. In Tanzania, we're working on a cook stove project because uh, bad or inefficient cook stoves consume a lot more fuel. It adds to uh, emissions. It adds to smoke inhalation and health problems. So we were studying um, what would get household women to actually change the cook stoves that they had because they might have attachments to them. So I was hanging out with this lady all day, um, watching her as she powered through all her chores. And we're trying to think, what well, was it, you know, utility? Was it ease of use? You know, could we convince her to do use a cook stove that would make things faster? But to her, what was important was actually something that was a throwaway comment. It was that when she met with her friends um, and, you know, her neighbors, at the end of the day, after she'd finished cooking all the meals, she wanted to look and feel fresh, not smell like smoke all the time because that felt too domestic, too provincial, too connected to that role that she had in the home. She wanted to be this other role of a modern woman who was in control of herself. In Pakistan, uh, in a, a design summit in Lahore, we were tackling maternal mortality because women were pregnant women we're getting to the delivery room too late um, at the cost of health complications um, or potentially uh, even death. And we wanted to see how we could uh, you know, solve that in some way. We realized that the women knew what to do, but they weren't the decision maker, it was the men. And But the men were kept out of it because they were not, uh, uh, it was the women's business. They were kept out of it just through taboo. So we went past the taboo and we looked at who they were and what their sense of identity was, because as fathers, they actually didn't know how to worry about their pregnant women. They didn't have any of the information. What, what do other fathers do? So here we tackled it by providing a hotline where they could very surreptitiously call as an anonymous hotline and find stories uh, from other fathers and learn that way in secret. And the beauty of um, learning and listening to people is that we also get to teach um, other people had to do it. Uh, in Mozambique, we were running a design sprint with insurance companies, um, helping them uh, get into the market of the uninsured, which were the informal sector because they were really only targeting corporates. And earlier that day, this team here had been agonizing about pricing points. They're like, uh, if the informal sector, they don't have you know constant cash flow, um, how are they gonna afford any of our products? 30 seconds into a pitch test, they were surprised that these women were saying, of course I can afford your insurance, but you just don't have anything that suits me right now. And they were able to then tap into deeper conversations of these women saying, if anything happens to one of us, we want our kids to still be able to go to school and pay the school fees. And these insurance company uh, representatives were so excited by that, they were able to go back to their offices and realizing they had an entire market at their fingertips. Um, they just you know, saw them in a different way in a very different light. So once I started to see this um, 
you know, just use this lens constantly, like not start from the base needs, but actually start from a sense of dignity and see how people wanted to be seen and how they saw themselves. I saw a pattern uh, fall into place and I'd love to um, share with you what this means. And of course there's drilling happening right now. So sorry about the background noise. Um, so going back to the States, uh, a problem here that I was really interested in was the sense of uh, constant homelessness. Um, when someone has been homeless, if you can imagine uh, what that life is like, they're probably couch surfing, staying with friends uh, up to the point of, you know, really abusing the sense of um, <laughs> just, uh, uh, yeah, just using up whatever credit points you have with your friends and family. Um, once they get allocated community housing or subsidized housing, which is really hard to get, by the way, a lot of people end up back in homelessness. And I couldn't understand this because I'm like, but well, you just got given a thing. How, how did you slip back into homelessness? And it's because they're, they walk into an apartment like this. It's bare, it's empty. And if any of you remember what it's like to set up a home, you remember how expensive things are, even if you're getting things from the thrift shops. So I volunteered with this uh, crew. It's a charity called Humble Design, where they get all of the um, old stock from, uh, you know, from the housing you know what are those shops the bed bath and beyonds or the people revamping their homes and this picture here is the first room that i decorated it was for a six-year-old girl and several hours before like earlier that day it was just an air mattress that was on the floor that was it but the team had actually spent time with the family learning what their wishes were they had a proper design brief of going what inspires you what interests you what is your mother-in-law like um what is what's your routine and everything then from the art on the walls, the rugs on the floor, the TV and the Wi-Fi that was built in, that was set up for them, the lamps, the warmth, um, all of this was then helping that family create that sense of who they, who they wanted to be. And where it really clicked for me, where it really hit home was when we were doing the kitchen. Uh, one of the volunteers was, uh, was really quite concerned actually. She'd done so many of these ones before. But she noticed there was no food in the fridge. There was packets of like half finished um, hamburgers and fast food leftovers. So she was actually thinking about going to the corner store and, and buying groceries, which was out of scope. Um, but we, st we stayed within scope. And later that afternoon, when the family walked in, you know, that big reveal, very much like on what you see on TV, after the tears and the joy and the, the shock of we have a fully furnished home for the first time, um, the mother then said something so critical that I just had to tell everybody about it. She said, now I can get groceries. Now I can get groceries. She'd always wanted to, but she didn't have cutlery. She didn't have knives. She didn't have the stuff to prepare a meal for her kid. And all of a sudden she could. And that's when I realized that we had actually helped set up the environment for her to help her really see who she could be and help her actually just move up to whatever her next step could be. And that to me was incredibly addictive because now I listen for this phrase, now I can. So going back to a couple of other projects um, in Zambia, uh, in the urban slums in Lusaka, uh, cholera happens every rainy season and people know to wash their hands and they know how cholera is spread, but they didn't realize it was also connected to their poor quality toilets and the fact that they have a high water table. So the project here was to get 
communities who had never invested in proper long-term toilets, you know, they rebuild every two years after it would collapse. They didn't realize that their structures were actually helping fecal matter move into the groundwater. So we tackled it from looking at what is their dream toilet? You know, if they're going to spend money on this, give them something that they actually would be proud of. And they said things like tiles because yes, they look fancy, but they're also really easy to clean. Um, and we'd love paint, you know, we'd love for the neighbors to know that we have a fancy toilet because it's pride, it's prestige. And then we had to fight the builders. The local builders were like, nah, we're just going to give them a squat toilet because they're used to it. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're stepping up in life. We're going to give them a proper toilet. Um, but we also snuck in a couple of requirements that then just made it commonplace. We got the elderly um, members of the family to, you know, be part of the design process to say, well, hey, how high do you want the seat to be? Uh, for your mobility, you're used to squat toilets, but all of a sudden you have a choice. And we started to see things like they'd say things all of a sudden, like, now I can sit comfortably and read the paper. This was a way, this is something that they probably would have thought applied to other people, but all of a sudden they could step into that. So these are not big, profound insights, but it's these little sentences or throwaway things that sound like, you know, a gain or you know, an aspiration somehow become really critical to how we see people see themselves. Um, just recently finished a project in Kenya in Kakuma, which is one of the largest refugee camps uh, housing, you know, for last 20 years, it's housed over 20, you know, 20 different nationalities. So people are there potentially for the long term. And again, with cook stoves, uh, it was a slightly more dire situation. Uh, families there give, get rations and they can't they don't necessarily have refrigerators so food preparation is a daily thing which means with their rations they have to make choices of do i use change these in for food or do i change it for um firewood and charcoal if i have a bad cook stove i'll use up more of that and a lot of people ended up scavenging in the forests illegally because they're not allowed to uh, for firewood and women get attacked there so we came into this thinking oh it's a security thing you know we don't want anyone to get raped. So let's, you know, look at it from that lens. But the more we met with them, we started to realize, actually, it's a bit more aspirational than that. What is it that they want? They're, they're entrepreneurs. They want to be able to do something with their time and, you know, build their cash base. What we realized was they wanted to be able to spend more time on their businesses or on their families. And that realization of when we spent time with them remotely via a Zoom and WhatsApp um, was that, if they could get a cook stove that burned less fuel that they then didn't have to um, spend so much time cooking because it cooked more efficiently, that freed them up for other things. Uh, last few stories here. In Zambia, in a town called Kabwe, a mobile money company was setting up a, a system where you'd have a savings product on your phone because you could send and receive money. And, um, the idea was that you could keep a little bit of that money aside on your phone for emergencies. So we were helping them pitch the product to say, well, how do you introduce it to people? And after a long day, this gentleman came up and asked if he could set up an account. So got all set up. And we realized, because we were the ones in the booth with that teller, that he was the blind beggar who had been sitting there at the corner because that was his beat. And this was the first time he'd ever had access to financial inclusion and what he said was, now I can start saving. For the first time, he didn't just have to have the cash on him. He felt financially included because the unbanked is a huge part of the problem over there. And 
taking you back to where I started with um, food banks in the US, one of the uh, tasks I was uh, given was to fill one day was to fill up all of these backpacks. And um, I, I was asking about them. And it turns out the backpacks were from a local school where the teachers had noticed that um, a lot of the kids, uh, they'd noticed a number of kids didn't have enough lunch, um, so they were going hungry. So they devised this system, a very discreet system, where they got the kids' backpacks and we'd fill them full of peanut butter because amazing energy source, by the way, um, oatmeal, you know, mac and cheese, things that they could, you know, raisins, different snacks, um, enough for the week. And then they get shipped back to the teachers who then get the kids to discreetly step into the teacher's room, collect their bags, um, and they didn't get singled out because for a kid, dignity looks like this. I can just be a regular kid. I don't get singled out because I'm poor. Um, I can just blend in. So this is what uh, my life has been like for the last uh, couple of years, working on UX and behavior change, where none of what I worked on was digital. But I just wanted to share some of that with you, because if we can all be part of this process where we help people set up the environment where they can then take that next step for themselves. We will have done a good job. So I'll end there. <laughs>